If Canadians are talking about it, chances are it's a conversation piece. The Walrus's new podcast features leaders in every field from healthcare to sports to science to fiction, and we're delivering their perspectives straight to you every week on the Conversation Piece podcast. Subscribe today at thewalrus.ca slash podcasts. I thought it was odd, the sound of horse hoofs outside my apartment. I've been keeping my window open throughout the pandemic. Sometimes I just sit in the living room and listen for sounds of activity, for something familiar. Horse hoofs were new, though. I figured it had to be the cops. I hung up my head and confirmed, a mounted member of the Toronto police slowly plodding down Queen Street. It's a familiar sight in the wealthy downtown, where they're likely, at least in part, for the benefit of visiting sightseers. A highly visible symbol of history, order, and opulence. But there's not a lot of tourists on my particular patch of Queen Street and Moss Park. Demographically, there are a lot of vulnerable people, really struggling during the best of times, and these are among the worst of times. The other thing mounted police are used for is crowd control. They were a common sight 10 years ago during the G20. And we're all about crowd control these days. Special laws have been passed to try and keep people apart and prevent the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Things like benches are off limits and open spaces are meant for people just passing through. Most recently, the city of Toronto has vowed any two people who don't live together who fail to stay two meters apart will catch a $1,000 fine. More than likely, the officer was looking for crowds to break up. In a dense neighborhood, often with narrow sidewalks and many people with no home to shelter in, he was likely to find some people gathered. Still, I found myself hoping he didn't. Yes, we're trying to reduce the risk for people, and yes, social distancing is a huge part of it. But a lot of these people have nowhere to go no money for fines, and are often a target of more severe enforcement. But people are scared, and mad, and they want action. The horse is out of the barn now. This is Facing Radio. Broadcasting from the narrow space between radical acceptance and utter despair, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk to the former chair of the Toronto Police Services Board, Alok Mukherjee, about some of the new policing measures we've been seeing. And Zoe Dodd, frontline harm reduction worker and co-organizer with the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society, tells us what the pandemic has meant for street-involved people and how the city's response measures up. But first... Let's check in with Spacing co-founder and Toronto Star columnist Sean McAuliffe about what remains of the public realm during a lockdown. Stand by. Hi, Glenn. Hey, how's it going, Sean? Uh, good. How are you? 
Uh, I'm doing okay, uh, you know. But uh, I wanted to talk to you, not just to check in, although, you know, that's important too. But, uh, you know, you're, you're covering, you've always been covering the sort of public realm beat. And uh, you've been doing great work at the Toronto Star. But uh, I think we're faced with kind of assessing what the public realm is, what it's allowed to be during this time. You know, I, I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about it, a lot of exploring and a lot of navigating these new sort of emergency rules. So uh, I was wondering, uh, you know, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? So far, it's been week by week. Like it, the, the, the sensibility of the city seems to change. Um, like the first few weeks, we were just like, this is totally brand new. And, you know, everyone was kind of like, are we allowed to go out to walk? Are we not allowed to go out to walk? And and and, and sort of even in the, the maybe the first week or two, you know, like the, the shock and almost disbelief in that, you know, we had to shrink our lives mostly to our domestic spaces. Um, and then as the weeks go by now, it seems to, it seems to be kind of, uh, I wrote this down somewhere, uh, a, a sort of purgatory that we've entered where you kind of, maybe the rules are a little better known and um, it is still such a strange thing though to like venture out into into public whether it's just to go for a little exercise walk or to go to the grocery store so you know we're all learning how to negotiate this um, and and like and because we're learning and because we knew for our entire lives how the rules worked um, it's not always easy so you're seeing you know clashes between uh, cyclists and people walking and runners. Uh, this week it seems joggers are the are the you know public enemy number one. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And, there's, and there's a there's a lot of bad joggers out there. Uh, there's a lot of good ones, um, but there's no excuse for the bad joggers. And so so you're seeing like these little flashpoints um, that uh, are really kind of sounds like wildfire uh, at least on social media. Um, and then we'll be on to the next kind of flashpoint. Um, but I think it, it's to be expected, maybe, you know, because yeah, we knew how to operate in public for better or for worse. You know, you know, there were always etiquette issues and now the rules are totally different. Um, and the spaces that we have are so precious and they've shrunk that these the, figuring out these clashes is a is a big challenge. Yeah. Like like you said, there, there are new rules every day. And, you know, I, I think. Everyone wants to take action. Everyone wants, you know, to be able to do something. And uh, I think even at, at the official level, we're still trying to figure out what exactly that is. We know that we should maintain distance, but how much distance? And how do we balance concerns uh, such as mental health and well-being, physical, physical well-being of that need to, especially for Canadians after six or whatever months of winter, when the sun is finally out, uh, and, you know, it doesn't hurt your face to exist outside. Yeah. You know, what do you do with that? I won't even say like the, the impulse. It's it's a need to to get out. Yeah. And I understand, you know, the, the, the challenge that, you know, public health and other officials are under in communicating these new rules because there, there's a bit of gray area. You know, like you can't, you have to tell people to stay home because uh, uh-huh. that's what we have to do. But there's still, you know, room to go out, right? You're still allowed to go out and, and it's necessary for physical and mental health, um, as well as just utility of shopping and that sort of thing. Um, so getting 
and it's been interesting watching reactions to you know public health officials when there's a bit of vagueness in the messaging. You know, like you are allowed to go out, but stay at home, um, and people don't like that ambiguity or the or or the wiggle room. People need the you know the direct order of what they can do. Right. Um, so that's actually been interesting to watch to see like how much. Like people, a lot of people need the exact instructions, you know, like you can walk here, you cannot walk here, walk X and walk X. And so I think what some might argue is an overreaction um, to to this about, you know, like closing parks and that sort of thing, uh, though you can still walk through parks for now, mm-hmm. um, is probably a reaction to, you know, this a segment of the population that needs the hard and fast rules. Right. And, and, you know, the confusion around uh, messaging becomes sort of extremely important when we start talking about fines, uh, potential jail time. Obviously, the jail time, I think, is is so far for people who are just blatantly flouting the rules. But uh, there are concerns about, uh, you know, marginalized people, maybe street involved people uh, who don't really have anywhere else to go. You can't really tell them to go home. You know, and and as we're all just trying to navigate these new and mounting rules um, with the potential fines behind them, uh, I think some people might be afraid to kind of exercise the freedoms that they have currently to their fullest extent. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of understand the need to have this big headline, you know, eight hundred whatever dollar fines and possible jail to sort of that that gets people's attention. Um, and I think you could see that last weekend, you know, a lot of people who maybe casually paid attention to this stuff suddenly they're like, Oh, this is serious. Um, but then, you know, and, and this is, this is not a new problem when you have all this discretionary power, um, to officers of various kinds out in public that, you know, a lot of officers probably will use common sense and, you know, to say, Hey, don't do that. And, and beyond with it. Um, but, you know, history, uh, recent and long-term history suggests that there are communities in, in the city, not just Toronto, elsewhere, um, that will face a disproportionate amount of um, harassment and attention from these authorities. I mean, there was already, uh, I think, a case last week. Uh, no, it would be sometime in the last week of uh, Hamilton of... of um, People who are homeless got tickets for eight hundred dollars, mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. Like uh, you know, like that's you know, just applying this blanket thing onto people who are in these extremely difficult circumstances maybe is the wrong solution. You know, so um, one would hope that some of the nuance of the stuff would be sorted out if this thing keeps going on for a while, as it does. Um, but we do have to be aware of the the. Uh, you know, how how different communities are treated. And this is not new. You know, there's lots of lots of evidence and lots of history um, already, you know, in pre-pandemic times. This is just going to exacerbate it with this extra amount of uh, discretionary power. And so much of your work is uh, about encouraging people to get out and explore their city, to fall in love with it any way that they can. And you're still managing to do that in this era of social distancing. Uh, I'm thinking especially of your, your most recent uh, star piece that uh, just came out at, at the time we we're recording this about how people can find sort of lower traffic areas to, to explore and, and get out for the, uh, the, that walk that they might need for their physical and mental well-being. Um, so how, how are you uh, encouraging people to keep on exploring their city and, 
and to enjoy these kind of uh, flaneurs, as they say. Yeah, it's kind of put a kink in my usual deal of, you know, like, go out and embrace the city, uh, which is like, it's funny because like Toronto um, and, and maybe some other cities who are not, you know, did not fully embrace their public life um, as maybe they should have. Um, needed a bit of encouragement and and I've come a long way and then suddenly to say you know okay don't do that now um, has been a funny thing but it has been a real challenge to write about this uh, writing about the public realm and and advocating for how necessary it is to you know preserve what we do have access to what we do have Um, because I don't want to you know say go here this is a great place to go this park you know, or this uh, this particular spot. Uh, this is a great place to walk during the pandemic mm-hmm. um, with the fear that suddenly we'd be overwhelmed. You know, like what we're seeing sometimes that, you know, some of the more, I don't know, high-profile locations, traditional locations where people go on a sunny day in Toronto, like High Park or the waterfront. Um, so I'm trying to, like, nudge people into kind of breaking the usual pattern, you know, the usual habit of on a sunny day, we go down to the lake or we go to this park, um, think a little bit more imaginatively. You know, maybe the places we have to walk are not the beautiful places. Um, maybe we have to go to the places that we actually think are ugly uh, or unattractive. Uh, and maybe for now, that's the place to walk. Um, and I think, in my in thinking romantically about this, that even these places that we might dismiss as ugly or um, you know unattractive places like industrial parks um, or utility corridors or um, you know like big big box land, uh, big box shopping land of of stores that are not open right now, um, like the stockyards with, or. Yeah, endless parking lots, right? Like mm-hmm. those are the places you get to find a lot of space. And so I think, and I think when you're actually there, the they they all have interesting details that will reveal themselves. You know, like traces of what was there before and topography, um, and and uh, even just like, especially in in places like that aren't as corporate, say, as the stockyards in Toronto. Um, you know, like strip mall parking lots, which I always return to. Um, just looking at the kind of different shops that are, you know, in these places that we might overlook, um, are that makes that'll make these walks interesting. I don't think they'll actually be boring walks, but we have to like we have to kind of train ourselves to like not want to go where the action is. We're going away from the action, which is sort of you know counterintuitive to the whole idea of urban living. And this is going to be our, our status quo for the coming weeks, uh, probably more like months, but who knows. Um, so in that time, what would you like to see happen in terms of public space, in terms of urban living? What are some uh, some goalposts we can set as, as a community? Uh, I think seeing people get into the groove of it, um, I don't want to say that glibly, uh, maybe that was the wrong phrase, but like understand how it works right and know that we can be outside and not have to feel anxious about it because we know most people around us know the rules now you know and we'll kind of be a little more aware of their surroundings uh, this is this is like my ideal mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if it's i hope it comes this is how it evolves um but you know we're walking down the street and you know if you're walking one way you're on that side and maybe we, we behave like cars you know left and right on the left side of the sidewalk right on the right hand side of the sidewalk when we're walking and 
uh, we don't stop in the middle of the sidewalk to chat um, or to think. You know, we have to be aware that there's people behind us that will now have to walk around us. So, like things that we did not have to think about um, as much. If people think about them more, that'll put a lot more people at ease. But uh, in my in my in my less cynical moments, I'm like, yeah, we can do this. And other times, I'm like, uh, I think about all the other behavioral things pre-pandemic that were so hard to change, <laughs> and, and it'll be a big challenge. Um, but uh, in the other, if, if this thing keeps going on and on uh, for a while, it's been a month or so. Now that we've kind of reached the plateau, we can see where places around the city maybe do need a little more space like the city places you know where everyone only has one little park uh community landing park to go to or um, liberty village and that sort of thing uh places where density calls for it to give people more space by you know taking back some of the roads which is what other cities are starting to do in different ways i i, I do understand the, the risk Nobody wants it to be a destination, and people get excited, and so they rush out to the empty streets. But I think I think we can do this in a way that give, uh, kind of bends the city a little bit, opens public space, so people can feel comfortable in it without feeling crowded or feeling like they have to, like they can't go out for that uh, you know hour walk to feel alive again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Sean, it was great to talk to you, and uh, I hope to talk to you in person, uh, maybe July. Maybe July at the beach. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, like those days when it gets warm finally, and we survived the Canadian winter, like that first weekend uh, when people sit on patios and that sort of thing. There's such a euphoria in the city, and that's just after one winter. That whenever this moment comes, um, it will be the mo- maybe the most euphoric. Uh, public moment of our lives maybe more than the raptors I don't know <laughs> well I look forward to that uh, thanks Sean I'll talk to you soon thank you Quinn bye and now here's some places that have taken measures to provide added pedestrian space for social distancing and safe cycling that aren't Toronto urban planner Gil Meslin has been compiling a list on Twitter that includes Edmonton, Alberta, where the Victoria Promenade bike lane has been expanded as a shared space, and Saskatchewan Drive has been reduced to a single lane. Brampton, Ontario, will be adding temporary bike space and reducing traffic lanes. Montreal, Quebec, has closed 2.7 kilometers of parking lanes to cars. Kitchener, Ontario, is using bollards to widen the sidewalk along King Street. Vancouver, BC, has closed the eastbound lane of Beach Avenue and closed Stanley Park to cars. Four streets in Winnipeg, Manitoba are being designated active transportation routes. And there's more. London, Ontario, Ottawa, outside of Canada. Many cities across the world have done or are planning to do similar things, like New York, Milan. The list grows. To date, the official word from the City of Toronto is that creating space for people will encourage them to congregate. But anyone who's had to line up for groceries knows the crowds are already there. So what are we doing? It's possible that if we take these measures, people will get used to them and want to keep things that way. Accessibility advocates, for example, have been calling for wider sidewalks for years. It would go a long way to making our legally mandated targets under the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. And if we're going to police social distance under the threat of heavy fines or more, maybe providing space for people to do that will keep them safe from, call them, enthusiastic officers especially if those people are members of communities we know from countless reports, are frequently and disproportionately targeted. While we're on the subject, 
Here's former police board chair Alok Mukherjee, who, with journalist Tim Harper, co-authored the book Excessive Force, Toronto's Fight to Reform City Policing. I've been looking at uh, a lot of information about the various new emergency powers, we'll call them, and the the fines and sometimes jail time that uh, can come with them. Uh, we're talking hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars in tickets. That's right. Uh, and uh, I know you, you think a lot about police reform and, and uh, law enforcement. And, and I was wondering what your thoughts were uh, trying to navigate uh, enforcing these uh, new emergency bylaws and provincial acts, uh, while at the same time uh, making sure that we still live in a, a fair and equitable society. Well, I mean, that's why we have to be very concerned. Uh, I don't know if you have seen there are two uh, graduate students, um, one from UFT, he's doing his PhD there, and the other is a postdoctoral fellow somewhere else, uh, Ottawa or Montreal. Uh, they have a website called Policing the Pandemic Project. They are collecting statistics from across the country. And, of course, the three provinces with the highest number of police um, interaction around COVID-19, Quebec at the top, Ontario and Nova Scotia. And what one has to worry about from my point of view is that the effect of these enhanced police powers, and and I'm using the term police broadly to include both the uh, police officers as well as the municipal bylaw officers. Right because they have been given added powers also, mm-hmm. that the effect is bound to be disproportionately on the poor and the marginalized, the racialized communities. Right, and I think we've seen that already. There was a piece in the Hamilton Spectator a few days ago talking about uh, street-involved people uh, being served fines that they cannot pay. Right, and and in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, those who have the luxury of having their own private backyards, etc. They won't be going to public spaces for their walk or anything. And those who live in spacious uh, condos may also enjoy some degree of privacy. But people who live in small spaces, who live, who are homeless, who will inevitably be in the public spaces, will be the primary targets. Right. And and they'll be in public spaces because uh, the governments did not make the preparation. I mean, how long did it take for Toronto to find spaces in the hotels for homeless people? Right. Yeah. So, in a way, another form of guarding to begin with. I mean, the power to stop and ask if everybody... Uh, uh, randomly to identify themselves and provide their home address, etc., is a form of guarding. I, I go for a walk. I carry my uh, Ontario identification with me. Right, in case you're stopped. In case I'm stopped. But of course, I don't see any police in my area, which is a well-off middle-class area. Right. So there's nobody here stopping anybody. But uh, 
you know, areas which are more crowded, which are less affluent, which are poor, um, I'm positive that that's where most of the policing will happen, as they have done before. And the the push against carding, I mean, that was ongoing. There, there's been victories in in a way recently in, in the last couple of years on the carding front. But now, as you say, some people are concerned that this is carding has sort of come back with these new uh, emergency powers. Yeah, it's carding through the back door, and again, uh, there are no clear. There's no clear explanation that when uh, people are stopped and asked to identify themselves, where is that information going? Who is keeping it? Uh, is it going to be removed as soon as possible? Mm-hmm. Who has oversight of it? What will be done with it? Defines. They are so exorbitant that the chances of people reoffending because they cannot pay the fine are very high. And uh, do you have any concerns at all that uh, when this pandemic is over, hopefully soon, but most likely a number of months at least, that these it's sort of hard to dial back these emergency powers once they've been implemented? Or is that uh, being a little too paranoid? That's a, that's a very good question. I've been thinking about it. The, when Ontario government enacted its emergency management law, right. there is no sunset clause. There is no nothing that says that the law will expire at a certain point, which they will have to do. But when they do that, will they cancel the old powers? People who have been ticketed, will their tickets be canceled or will they have to go to court? And uh, will any records be cleansed so that nobody ends up with a permanent record? Right. None of that has been articulated or certainly not set out in the emergency law or the city bylaw emergency declaration by the city. So we have these new stringent requirements being imposed on the public to make up for the fact that the state is not prepared, Uh, people are not being tested, people are not getting the attention that they need. We have belatedly, we're scrambling to do things. Mm So we're using coercion as the alternative. Would you prefer to see more of a like a public information campaign rather than enforcement? Or, or that's right. That's yeah. right. I mean, why couldn't the city's bylaw officers or parks and rec people uh, properly outfitted for their own safety be asked to go to public spaces and educate people? give a uh, educational material, disperse them. The fact is that the number of people who are not following the safety rules mm-hmm. is relatively small. Right. But we have created and given huge powers. And innocent people are at risk of being put in the police database 
for what's a health issue. Right. It's not a law and order issue. It's not a criminal issue. And you know, there may be a proportion of people who are flouting. There are likely to be people who have no choice because of lack of adequate housing, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's more important to make people aware, educate them, provide them with information, and provide adequate housing for those who don't have any place to go. And so in, in terms of moving forward, a lot of the police reforms that we've seen in the last few years uh, have come out of citizen engagement. That avenue is kind of cut off right now because we can't all go to the police services board meeting right now. And, uh, you know, a lot of things are happening kind of quietly and, and quickly. So what are we supposed to do in an emergency like this to maintain some level of citizen say over the way that policing is happening during this pandemic? Well, I think um, some things we could call for, for instance, the city and the police board publicly reporting on a weekly basis Mm -hmm. the number of interactions where in the city are they taking place and are people simply being educated and let go or are they being ticketed what are the fines being so public disclosure of the information on an ongoing basis could be done now mm-hmm. second um there's no reason why the city and the police should not be clearly setting out the limits within which the police power policing powers will be used mm-hmm. thirdly they can start talking right now about, first of all, where is all the data going and how quickly will it be erased or deleted. So those are the kinds of things they can do right now. Uh, and I suspect the more public information there is, the more careful enforcement will be. Well, look, uh, it's an important conversation to have, and, and I appreciate you having it with me. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Okay. Okay. Good to talk to you. Be well. Right. You too. Now, with governments all over the world trying to curb the infection rate and prevent overwhelming already strained healthcare systems, the common refrain is that people should stay at home whenever possible. Of course, not everyone has a home to shelter in, and some people have to flee the homes they have. In fact, in Toronto, there are over 7,000 people who rely on the shelter system with no other place to go. These spaces are often severely overcrowded on a given day and nearly impossible to practice social distancing in. As well, we were already facing a fatal crisis of overdoses in this city among those with substance issues. The combination of these two things are making people on the front lines very nervous, and harm reduction worker Zoe Dodd is watching it unfold in real time. The works actually is the largest supervised injection service in the city of Toronto. It sees it has about 3,000 visits a month. In the month of February, there were over 300 phone calls to EMS that paramedics responded to for overdoses. 
in February, in March, it was the same. They were, we had 335 calls to EMS for opioid overdoses. So that hasn't changed. Like the overdose crisis has been escalating, continued to escalate. Our numbers are going to be so much greater uh, than British Columbia for deaths for 2019. And the the drug supply has continued to get toxic. So the work's closing. You know, it's, that's an essential service. And there was nothing else in place because they needed to quickly put in their infection protocols. But then they stayed closed. Um, and there were numerous uh, sort of rumors around why they were still closed. And then, you know, here we are. It's what, April 16th? They've been closed since March 18th. And now we're hearing from uh, like the Rita Shaheen and other medical officers of health that the reason it's closed is because of congregating of people outside the space. And how will they control that? Which, you know, you could hire a worker to be outside and engage with people to keep them distance. So it's not really a reason to be closed. It's not sufficient enough when people are like literally overdosing and dying on the streets. And in terms of street involved people who don't have a home to shelter in place in, I think uh, there's over 7,000 people in the shelter system in Toronto. We've started to see uh, positive uh cases within that community of mm-hmm. COVID and, and even uh, what, what some would call a literal breakouts in, in the shelter system. So what are you seeing and what has the city's response to this been to, to date? Oh, man. it's So an outbreak is considered two people or more. And so outbreaks have been happening in the shelters, but it's been quite quiet about it. So the re- most recent outbreak is at Willowdale Welcome Center, which is a, a refugee shelter. Half the people staying there are refugees, the other half are not. People also got moved there. It's run by the Homes for Society. But there were other people who were coming up positive in other places. There's a worker positive at the Good Shepherd. And, and there's just different shelters that have had positive cases. It's only coming really to light now that they're talking about it at, at like the government level. And they, they, I feel like they've been really neglecting what's happening in the shelter system. And so there wasn't really any sufficient plans in place for shelters. First of all, for assessment and screening, that's a lot to put on staff. Uh, things were not being implemented. Staff at shelters were not getting proper PPE. The shelter system is overcrowded. It's been completely neglected. You have people sleeping like a foot apart, two feet apart. It's in, like impossible to physically distance. Last Wednesday, the chief medical officer of health, Eileen Davila, was in the media saying that she didn't think there was merit or need to give a directive for physical distancing in the shelters. Uh, the city, because of public of pressure from advocates, opened up overflow shelters, but those didn't add new additional beds or new additional spaces to the current system. They just took people out of drop-ins where people shouldn't have been staying in the first place, shouldn't have been a shelter, and moved them into there. They took some people out of really overcrowded shelters and moved them into these community centers. During the start of that, advocates like myself were saying, we need hotel rooms. Like, we need hotel rooms, not hospital beds. We need hotel, we need people in the shelter system to have a fighting chance to to not get COVID, but the plans of prevention were, were not the plans in the pandemic planning that any of us could see. So they so they weren't they weren't something that was going to be implemented. They were doing risk stratification to figure out how many people were going to get sick and who were the most vulnerable. Knowing homeless people were going to get sick, they only have thought about like the end of of when people are going to get sick, not how do you prevent people from getting sick in the first place. So to clarify, the the medical officer of health for for Toronto said that distancing was wasn't a concern in the shelter system. There was no need or merit to give direction that 
to to force shelters to do physical distancing. Yes, I mean that's that's striking uh, to me because if the whole point of uh, the last month and a whatever amount of time it's been it is to prevent the spread uh, of the disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, the disease doesn't care about class or, or people no. where you live um, and, and it affects everyone and, and it all ends up in the same system. So uh, th- that just seems incredibly short-sighted. Oh, totally. And then, then there's no consideration either. Like there's the workers also working in these spaces and they're going home to their families. They're going home to other people. They're going home to roommates. There's people who work between different shelters. They don't just work at one cause they're low paid. They're very under low paid jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people work temporary, they work relief, they work at different shelters. The shelter system relies on temporary workers to work at different places. They rely on temp agencies. So just like we talk about long-term care homes and workers being underpaid and working at different places and not having proper PPE, it's the same problem in the shelter system. We have thousands of people in the shelter system. And so it is very hypocritical for the chief medical officer of health to say to all of us, if you have a home, you need to stay home. You need to socially distance. You need to do your part. But they have a responsibility since they are like they, they contract out the shelters to different operators. They have a, a responsibility to enforce some measures, making sure there's PPE, making sure there's protocols. But there has been no protocol directive given from the Ontario Public Chief Medical Officer of Health to the city Chief Medical Officer of Health. So it sounds very confusing and it makes absolutely no sense from a a population health perspective or how you would stop a pandemic and control a pandemic to allow it just to spread. And in terms of law enforcement, law enforcement in this city and in many cities all over the world uh, has an issue with uh, how they treat the marginalized, how they treat street involved people or uh, people living with uh, um, substance abuse issues. And that's on a good day. So with these new uh, kind of extraordinary powers and the, these sort of uh, Two meters of separation, uh, no loitering kind of rules being enforced. Uh, how is that affecting the, the community that you work with? Well, at first we were hurt. We heard that like people were just going to be get, given education about like how to physically distance. And But if you went to the downtown east side right now, you would see police cars just driving around and around and around. You see cops on bikes. You see undercovers. And so at first it was like about education and then it's been about police coming and telling people you need to be distancing. But the thing about people on the streets is like a lot of people move in networks. Those networks are their families. And it is also really confusing to people who are staying in shelters to be told you need to physically distance. And yet they're in the shelter where they can't do that either. Right. So it's like a really big mixed message. Um, and in the and then the last couple of days, um, I've heard that people got ticketed $1,500 fines for being next to each other, that, that park benches were being removed, that police were harassing them, that bylaw officers also told us that they weren't going to be going after any encampments because people have chosen to like also set up tents so that they can physically isolate because they don't want to be in the shelters. And bylaw officers are not going to be removing tents or encampments, but police have been going by and, and harassing people. And so there is, with limited people around, you know, really like police can do whatever to people without people being able to see and especially really marginalized people who 
you know, uh, clearly just are seen very disposable by those who are making decisions at a top level. You know, everything happened really fast. And so it's like scary for people. I think most of us are assuming that at some point we're going to have a curfew and possibly the military if people aren't like staying home or whatever the message is. I mean, that's an easy message for politicians to give people. But at the same point, there are a lot of people who can't abide by that because they don't have a home to go to. And they don't have anywhere to go inside because only 10 of the 49 drop-ins are operating. They're not really operating for people to come in and hang out. You can go there, you can get a meal handed to you, but you can't actually like go inside and hang out there. So you're really vulnerable. That's why you'll see if you're taking TTC right now, you would see a lot of homeless people riding the subway and streetcars for shelter. So for you and your organization, uh, what happens in the next few weeks and and what do you hope to see in, I mean, it could be months. Well, I hope that the city like really steps up and just, I I hope hotel rooms open. There's so much spinning. Like one week you'll hear like we're opening thousands and it's not true. And then you find out, okay, it's 1,200, but only 400 people have been moved in so far in a month. Mm-hmm. You know, we need thousands of people out of the shelter system. You know, you'll hear the mayor say things. I mean, I don't know if he's been saying this now, but he has in the past talking about how everyone who's homeless and in shelters, they all have mental health issues and addiction issues, and that's, like, why, you know, they're in the shelters. I mean, that's not why people are in the shelters. People are in the shelters because they can't afford a home. The city has priced people out of their homes. It's really hard to get a place to live. I have colleagues at work who are living in shelters because they cannot afford a place to live. They could be in hotels. And so the city also has the power to expropriate whatever they need to to house people. So they need to do that. I hope that happens. Another big thing that's happening is there's no mass testing or screening within the shelter system. So you have all these people in congregate settings with no mass testing or screening happening. We need screening and mass testing. We need teams to go in to do that. And that not just in shelters. We need that for the prisons, which also need to be releasing people, hopefully to hotels if they don't have a home. And um, anyone in a congregate setting, so boarding homes, the psychiatric group homes, just people, like those, all these different kinds of settings where people might be living. And they also need to be following proper precautions, which is also not happening. I mean, we could actually contain COVID and we could make sure that we don't just like sending people to the hospitals and at the same time be working on solutions like housing in the city. They could make Airbnb illegal and then make those people who run Airbnb rent those 30,000 units out to people. Right. <laughs> There's like actual solutions that, that we could use at this point to get us out of multiple crises. And that would be the same for the overdose crisis that we're in, we could have prescribers prescribing people safer supply and we could have, you know, we could have the government say we're going to decriminalize and legalize drugs right now and start that process so that people also aren't further criminalized on the streets while procuring drugs where they're supposed to be at home. Zoe, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and uh, stay well, eh? Yeah, thanks for chatting with me. Okay, all the best. Bye.
Believe it or not, I try to light a candle as often as I curse the darkness. There have been many people, politicians, health officials, and public sector workers, who have been tirelessly trying to reduce the possible harm the COVID-19 virus might have in Toronto and elsewhere. And it seems to be working. The latest numbers coming out of Ontario are cause for relief. Our intensive care units haven't been completely overrun, and we may even be seeing a slowing of the spread of coronavirus cases. The massive shutdowns, the social distancing, the many precautions are doing what they were intended to do. But throughout this experience, there's been a tendency to be single-minded. I've seen arguments that we don't have time for concerns we might otherwise discuss if we weren't in crisis mode. But this crisis shows us exactly where our vulnerabilities lie as a city. And they're right where they've always been. Not just the chronic underfunding we've seen after decades of austerity talk. The people who were vulnerable to over-policing before are even more vulnerable now. Prioritizing space for cars over people continues to be deadly and unlivable. The need for open spaces for people's physical and mental health is even more necessary when not everyone has a backyard or balcony to hold concerts on Instagram. And people still need safe, affordable places to live. I don't mean to sound bitter, but if we don't collectively come out of an experience like this without thinking long and hard about lessons we should learn from it, we're going to get hit hard again. Maybe next time it's a massive storm. Who knows? But if the idea you pull from this pandemic is the need for snitch lines, you're only telling on yourself. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell your Zoom chat, your overwhelmed house pets, and anyone you can maintain a safe distance from. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If there's anything you'd like to hear, anything you'd appreciate us digging into, or if you have a story about city life during COVID-19, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca. You'll find a lot of new content on there to help keep you informed. The city store, unfortunately, is closed, like a lot of independent businesses for the time being. If you're able to, and you'd like to support Spacing during this rough time, the best way you can do that is to subscribe to our quarterly magazine. You can do that at spacingstore.ca, and we have a brand new issue addressing the pandemic about to launch soon. In the meantime, find a quiet spot for a walk. Cheers. Cheers.